Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? Well, I'd be fine if I could tell time. <laughs> I have time problems these days. <laughs> We're, are we struggling with, um, do we need to go I'm back? struggling seasonally, I think, would oh. be a good way to put it. Not so much with like, you know, hours on the clock, but so much with seasons. So we, we need to go back to, you know, maybe, you know, kindergarten or first grade where we where were we learning the seasons, seasons and, and we learned to put, we learned to put <laughs> podcast episodes out in order of the seasons. Yes, yeah. I think. Yeah. Okay. So, so listeners, listeners. Yeah. Okay. Go uh, ahead, Augie. So um, uh, you are about ready. You're about to uh, listen to um, or read the transcript for a podcast episode that we recorded um, a couple of months ago. And our intention was to have uh, a summer of favorites um, where each episode would uh, be a discussion of some of our favorite things related to government and politics. Um, and they weren't our normal fare of government documents or political events. Yeah, or facts. They weren't facts. <laughs> Okay. They were pretty much fact free in Good. most instances in terms of how but, the government runs or yeah. based in government documents, which is generally what we do. Yes. And our intention was to record a number of these episodes and then release them during the summer. Um, uh, and for a get to know you kind of summer. This yeah. Is sort of our summer of favorites so that you could get to know us. Yeah, a little mm -hmm. more personally of what we think of when we think of favorites. Yes, and but and, like all good plans. Yeah, uh, you know uh, uh, what is it? The best laid plans of mice and men often go astray, right? Yeah. And in this instance, one of us is a man and one of us is a mouse. <laughs> what is that? Is, uh, uh, is that a? I didn't uh, want to take away your manhood by saying we were mice. We're both mice. Okay. The the quote though is from Dickens, right? Right. Okay. Um, anyways, so <laughs> we were about you know we recorded these episodes. Our intention was to go ahead and release them during the summer. However, um, we received a bunch of emails. Okay, from faithful listeners. Um, who wanted to know um, if or and or when we were going to have podcast episodes about the recently completed Supreme Court term that finished up the last week of June. The recently non-controversial, completely boring, nothing else happened in, in, in the whole thing, U.S. Supreme Court yes. term. That's so, the one you mean, right? Yes, exactly. Right. Because, <laughs> you know, the United States Supreme yeah. Court. Several of our readers slash listeners were on fire, basically. Yeah, they were yes. like, oh, my gosh, you have to address this. Yes. So yeah. what we did, listeners, is um, we scrapped our summer of favorites, um, but we didn't scrap it. We just delayed release of those episodes. So what follows is one of those episodes. Thank you for your patience for us with our timing and once um, we're through our fall of favorites yes we'll we, come back with regularly scheduled episodes of normalness yes where we focus on government documents government processes okay things in the news okay yep. um but uh we facts uh, and figures and all the things that are true yes instead of all the things that are our opinions which may or may not be true <laughs> 
Thanks, Augie. <laughs> Thank you, Neil. Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Uh, well, I'm quite good because uh, today's podcast episode is about books. I know, and they're your favorite thing besides your kid. <laughs> you got that. That's your order of your order of yes, love and McKenzie, joy. McKenzie, McKenzie books, books, rest of my family, <laughs> teaching. And then coffee. And coffee. Yes. I, I, fifth, fifth after all those. But yes. But um, yeah, books, you know, I know. You're much more of a reader than I am, which I think people would be surprised by because I'm a librarian and everybody thinks that librarians just sit around and read. And turns out that's so not the case with librarians. We don't just sit around and read. Um, and mostly what we read now, or at least what I read, is nonfiction. But that's because I don't work at the public library. Like I don't work in fiction, I work in nonfiction. Fiction. And, and, and also, too. So, a lot of, of what I notice with, about librarians is that you guys take great joy in helping people get to resources, books, journals, right? Right. I mean, that's the joy you all have. Oh, it's the hunt. Yes, right? Yeah, I don't actually, I'm like a dog that chases a car i don't really want to catch a car because i don't know what i'm gonna do with it but <laughs> when i get it in my teeth but the, the chase is awesome right yeah. the sort of trying to hunt down the right thing so that people go oh, and, that's exactly the article that i need and then if you can bring others into your joy of the hunt okay well all the better oh yeah you know you want other dogs in the neighborhood to also go ahead and chase cars right, right? Right. We're, all, we're all just running down the road chasing a car that's like I, I'm being chased by a herd of dogs. So I don't think it's called a herd when it's no, a it's a pack, right? Pack of dogs. Yeah, it, you know, just like wolves, right? Okay. But, uh, but, but what I think is interesting for listeners who who have never seen Augie's uh, where Augie records, we record in our homes so and we record on Zoom, which is why the quality of the sound is always a little iffy. Yes. Um, but he records in his home office, which is one half books <laughs> and one half music CDs. Um, yes. and, and his professional books, his reading books for professional work, like his nonfiction stuff is at work. work. So his office at work also has a metric ton of books, <laughs> but no CDs because he doesn't listen to music at work all that much. Right. <laughs> and my uh, home office has like 12 books in it. <laughs> and they're all citation manuals so so it's just funny to me how we do this very differently um and yeah, I, mean, I'm finding, it, 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 I, I hate this about myself but i'm finding this and it may be true for other listeners so we have sympathy for you if it is true for you that my attention span i struggle with an entire novel these days because a lot of what i read is journal articles on 
specific subjects. And, and I struggled to hold my attention. Yeah, yeah, because journal articles are typically what, Nia, about you 20 know, to 25, 25 pages, pages max. Okay. Um, so you sit down, you can go ahead and read those, you know, in a half hour, 45 minutes. You digest that, right. And it's yeah, a, okay. not a novel, man. 400 pages. And I'm like, is this ever going to be over? <laughs> so so that's not that's not a good sign for me. I, I And I have a friend who we have committed to each other that we are going to work on that by reading um short stories first and then working into shorter novels and then back into longer novels because i used to read all the time i used to read novels all the time yeah um and i've gotten out of the habit unfortunately augie has not which is why his list goes on like when you know augie's favorite political books he's like how many episodes do we want to make on this (laughs) and uh, i'm like uh one and he was like oh Oh, I mean, and okay. for him, that's like for for him, it's like asking a DJ, "What's your favorite song?" Yeah, right. That would depend on which hour of which day of which week of which year that you were talking about. When I have to pick a favorite, Mia, because... do you remember when uh, we were in our twenties and thirties, and there was this, um, um, you know, <clears throat> you know, what ten albums would you uh, take with you on to a, a desert, desert island? The desert island, right? Yeah. Um, and I and I remember having the, that conversation with a couple of DJs, and they were just like, "Well, what kind of desert island?" And I was like, "What do you mean, what kind of desert island?" And they're like, "Well, I mean, it's going to depend, okay, because if it's in the morning at the desert island, I would want these ten albums, okay. If it was like during a rainstorm, I would want these." And I was just like, "Right." <laughs> But then for some was, people, it is not a simple question. And, and then it just kind of sort of dawned on me, you know, it's kind of sort of like, you know, somebody says to me, you know, what's your, you know, uh, 10 favorite spy novels, right? I'm like, uh, okay, no, no, I will right? not answer that question. <laughs> okay. You know, because uh, ask me today and then ask me again tomorrow, and they will probably be, be there may be some overlap, but there's going to be very much differences. Yeah. Um, so listeners, uh, uh, again, this is during our um, um, summer of favorites. Um, and, and, so my and, section is going to be short and Augie's section is going to be long. Well, no, I, but I, one I, of the things we do agree on, which I think is interesting, is we both put George Orwell as our first yes. favorite political author, even though George Orwell was British, was he not? Yes, he was British. Yes. Um, yes but yes. he but it's funny because that's both on our list separately done. We both we both <laughs> yes. chose George Orwell as our first um, and our one person that we have in common. Although Augie's got some people on his list, I'm like, oh yeah, those are great. So that's the other thing is is people remind you of things, and then you're like, oh, that's really good. You know what about yeah, this? It, it, like it, he it, put Steinbeck on his list, which we will get to, and I'm like, of course, of course, Steinbeck <laughs> writing about the depression and you know. Yeah, and, and, and what and, that and, meant in those times and all that kind of stuff. And Nia, when I went ahead and saw that you put Margaret Truman down, right? I was just oh. like, yeah, I was just like, yes, of course, right? <laughs> and, and that's one of those great things when you have like, you know, newspaper articles or magazine articles or podcast episodes that are, you know, about lists of things, right? right. It reminds it's, you like, oh, I, that's right. I could yes. read, or I haven't read, I haven't read that in so long. I want to yes. reread it, that kind of thing. Yeah. So can we start, Mr. Orwell? I'm going to start, if you don't mind, with Animal No, go ahead. Yes. Animal Farm, um, 
is uh, really is his view of early Soviet communism. Yes. So yep. a bunch of the characters, Stalin, Trotsky, like a bunch of the characters represent those people. Yes. And um, the famous line from that book that everybody knows is all animals are equal. That's how it starts out on the wall. All yeah. animals are equal. Yeah. But then it eventually becomes all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Yes. Um, right. And, 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 and the whole point of a novel is this sort of eventual corruption of any system that that power corrupts, right? Yes. Power and money yes. corrupt. Yes. And it doesn't matter what your, how, how uh, noble your intent when you start. And I have to admit, this formed my view of politics. This formed my <laughs> cynical view of politics. Yes. In yes. the sense that I regularly will say about politicians, they start off oh, with great. these sort of hopeful, they're going to yes. fix the world and everything. And by the end, they are just as much criminals as the people who were already there. Like this whole thing of emptying the swamp. Um, if you emptied the swamp, there wouldn't be anything left. Like no. there's no, right? It, 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 by its nature, power corrupts. By its nature, people who are in power think, like Nixon, well, if the president does it, it can't be illegal. You're like, wait, sure. what? <laughs> well, <laughs> well and, and, and as an institutionalist, and you know, my perspective on political, political science or politics in general is as an institutionalist, okay? Even if you don't go as far as the notion that all power corrupts, Orwell's Animal Farm appealed to me in my youth. And I don't know about you, Nia, but the first time I read Animal Farm, um, I think I was a freshman or sophomore in high school, right? Mm -hmm. That's the age I read it too. Yep. Okay. And and I couldn't and I didn't understand fully then why it appealed to me until I got older and I started learning different, if you will, explanations for the political world or public policy, right? And Animal Farm has a very institutionalist view, which is no matter what government institution a society creates, okay, the people of that nation are going to be molded, shaped, and changed by that system, by those institutions. Right. And that's one of the reasons why it appealed to me Okay, because Orwell, and mind you, when he when the book was first published, it was viewed as an anti-communist, if you will, screed. Right. But Orwell insisted until he died that it was a critique of any government system put together by human beings. Right. right? Exactly. That, that he was just merely pointing out to some of his British friends that you all are, you know, openly embracing communism because you hate British, you know, you know, class system and the British form of democracy. But, you know, hey, there's more than likely going to be <laughs> these problems, okay, with communism. Right. Okay. Uh, and we, just as a side note, we are going to try really hard not to ruin the ending of these books yes. for you because yes. oh, we don't yes. want to, we don't want to, <laughs> you know. Um, 
Yeah, me and I are not big fans of spoiler alerts. Uh, well, actually, we are fans of spoiler alerts. We're not so great of spoilers, and we try not to spoil, although I did spoil by giving you the line of the book, but that I think everybody knows pretty much that yes. line of the book. Yeah. But we are going to try to uh, to not do that. Your George Orwell is oh, 1984. Ah, yes. Okay. Um, it is a dystopian social science fiction novel. It's a cautionary tale. Okay. Um, it was uh, published in 1949. It was Orwell's uh, ninth and final book uh, completed in his lifetime. But and Orwell died young, by the way. He died at 49 or 48. He yeah, he was, he was in his young late, man when yeah, he died. late 40s. Yeah. Um, but it looks at the consequences of uh, totalitarianism. Um, but what most know of 1984 is the mass surveillance and repressive regimentation of people and behaviors within and, society. And what is the name of that character? Oh, my God. Oh. Big Brother. Yes, but yeah, Big Brother. Big Brother, just, Big I'm, Brother I'm, is I'm, watching. Big Brother is watching. And and so uh, listen and so for people of a certain age when you say big brother yeah it's shorthand for all the cameras and all the surveillance and all the everything constantly like your phone being gps trackable at any given moment and all that when we say big brother that's what we're talking about is this is this not it's the sort of encapsulation of that yeah and in it's such a good choice you made in in the listeners and, and I see this a lot with my students because I will go ahead and drop Big Brother, okay, into a conversation, and they just look at me, and I'm like, okay, you know, 1984, George Orwell, and they're like, yeah, so, and I'm like, I said, for a particular generation, or probably we're living that <laughs> two, two, two generations of Americans, you know, a lot of this uh, of politics in America is portrayed as older versus younger generations. And some of that is true, but older generations um, that grew up, you know, reading or in the case of 1984, watching the movie, okay, we're very, very cautious about today's use of technology because it is so ubiquitous and so much of what we do can be tracked either by the government and or the private sector. Big corporations. Right. And your uh, phone company knows where you are all the all time. time. I mean, and, you know, you know, which is terrifying. Yeah. When you think about it. But see, Augie and I, now these, this was published in 1949. We are not yeah. that old, by the way. No. <laughs> but it came sort of into vogue as a as a novel again when we were in our early high school i'm pretty sure i read this i think i read animal farm in freshman year and 1984 in sophomore year yeah that right. yeah that would make sense yeah sort of around yeah. those times and and so for us we're talking about the early 80s when cell phones were the you know they were like a foot and a half long and they fit into a big box and you like it was ahead of its time, but it was also cautionary at the time. Like our teachers were saying to us, be careful because these technologies are coming into your life. The internet is starting to come into your life. Um, 
computers are starting to come into your life, cell phones are starting to come into your life, and this will lead to or could lead to could lead to this a, with the with now and Orwell was brilliant in seeing this ahead now when a British person leaves their home from the time they leave their home to the time they get back to their home in the evening 112 pictures of them have been taken yes by yes. public yeah CCTV CCTV yes. I, yes. I mean I don't know how anybody gets away with murder in Britain anymore. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't know if you could make midsummer, you know, midsummer murders, you know, that show where everybody dies every week and you're like, dang, I don't want to go there. Um because <laughs> like I mean, it's just amazing to me. Yes. And it is amazing to me with the number of cameras that we have that people still disappear. But anyway, that's a separate issue. The other reason why I love this book, and we've discussed um this kind of sort of sub theme in our podcast. In fact, it was one of the reasons why um, you, Nia, initially approached me about doing this podcast. And that is this idea of the role of truth in facts within society and how they can be manipulated and how if you want to avoid always being manipulated, you as a citizen, okay, need to seek out find, read, and think about, okay, facts, okay, what your government does or does not do, okay, um, who's saying what and why, um, and that's one of the sub-themes of the book, and good Lord, does that reg resonate today, okay, in regard to, you know, what is the truth, what are facts, okay, um, and how do we in a society um, um, socially construct and individually con construct what are, you know, truth and facts? Um, so, well, the first line in the in the novel is it was a bright day in April and the clocks were striking 13. <laughs> right. Already sets you up for truth is relative. Yes. OK. Right? Yes. OK. So your second book is I, I if I dare say is probably not a quote unquote favorite, but you recognize how significant and important it was. Well it, what's it, funny it to is. me is that is that in my college years when I decided that I wanted to be a radical socialist and chain <laughs> yeah. myself to things and get arrested for um for protesting and stuff like that which by the way happened i will be honest and say that it happened well uh, yeah listeners um, let's be very clear here i have a okay. i have a criminal past just like augie does we just have slightly different criminal pasts well and and also too it, 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 the diversions of us today okay <laughs> have, very different yes evolved very and changed different. filtered I mean, right. you know, you just went ahead and talked about your radic radical socialist stage. Okay, I had, you know, the, you know, I'm a co communist, okay, and, you know, um, you know, a, a, a phase. Um, but shortly after my communist phase, I had a phase to where I consumed all the books of our next author, and that next author is? Ayn Rand. Yes. And okay. I did the same thing. 
I did the exact same thing in college. I had my communist phase, then I had my anti-communist phase, um, and then I had my I don't like anybody in politics anywhere phase. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, the only thing that I consistently did all those years was vote. It's just my votes were crazy. Like now that I look back on them, I'm like, oh, I was interesting. Now, uh, Nia, before we get to uh, this book, uh, which, by the way, listeners are just like, well, which of, you know, Rand's which books? Which of Ayn Rand's books is it? Uh, we're talking about Atlas Shrugged this time. Now, Although we could talk about The Fountainhead, but we will talk about Atlas Shrugged. Okay, Nia, did you have an, uh, an anarchist phase? See, I, I, had, I, ha- I had one I of did. those. Okay, where I was was the phase where I tried to figure out who I was. Yeah, you know, and I was just like, you know, all these structures are garbage. Okay, all these institutions. I'm moving to the mountains to live by myself. Yes, okay. Suck. Yeah, and and it was probably not all that surprising is when I first got introduced to jazz. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) right. You know, you know the the an anarchist form of music. Yeah, right. You know, the first time I heard, you know. Coltrane and his band go off on like a you know an eight minute tangent in a song and I'm like oh hey that's really cool right because it's who you were at the time and, and yeah. that is still cool yes. by the way oh yeah Coltrane is awesome but yeah. um anyways Atlas back to Shrugged. Atlas Shrugged. so yeah. Ayn Rand was a Russian author who moved to the United States she uh she she had come from the Soviet form of communism yeah I say that because the Soviet form of communism and the Chinese form of communism are different Yes. And she yep. had come from the Soviet form of communism. And she went to the other direction, as many ex communists do, by being very, very capitalist, um, yes. very much about individual, uh, the individual in their fight against conformity and stuff like that. Atlas Shrugged is um, generally speaking, the broad storyline is that there is. Um, that there is too much regulation in yeah. business and that it kills creativity and it kills the magnates of society. Yes. That it, yep. that it drives them yes. um, out of business because of, of, of too much regulation. And there's this character in the movie, John Galt, who is often referred to in on t-shirts as who is John Galt? Cause that's a, a phrase used in the book yeah. and it has double meaning in the beginning of the book it, it kind of means why bother but in the end of the book he actually is a person yes and uh he encourages these these magnates to sort of do things and and i don't want to ruin the story and where it goes with that but it is very much a libertarian and sort of ultra conservative like you have to get there's this weird mixture of people who really love this love Ayn Rand's work. The Fountainhead is another one of her works. It's a, uh, about an architect who refuses to conform to architectural design norms. Yes. <laughs> and and it's all about his personal freedom and his personal um, fight to be uh, to be himself. Yeah, to be an individual. That's John Rourke. Yeah. Um, is yeah. the character in that book. And both of those, right, the individual is what's important. Because, of course, she was coming out of society where the individual did not matter. And yeah. so she went to the other yeah. extreme of that. Uh, fans of this, uh, often you hear um, Paul Ryan 
uh, yeah, who was the former Speaker of the, Speaker of the House. House. Yep, representative from Wisconsin. But lots yeah. of conservative and lots of libertarian politicians will point to Ayn Rand and say that's the society we should be living in. Yes. Um, yes. So, yeah, that's that's our Ayn Rand. Uh, yeah, she and- herself had a quite the interesting personal life. Um, uh, by the way she said she just as a side note for the fountainhead she said that she made that character in that that she had used a lot of frank lloyd wright's uh what she thought his philosophy was and he wanted nothing nothing to do do with it yeah he he said i am not a part of this and she is she does not speak for me so that's kind of interesting how people separated themselves from her yeah but it is good to read it is quite long if yes. you are going to sit down with Atlas Shrugged, you need a long weekend or perhaps a week at the beach. I don't yes. know if it's a brilliant beach read. It's not a beach read, but if you're taking a break, um, you know, from society or you're... And if you want to feel bad about other people, yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty good, pretty good way to... Yeah, because part that. of Rand's argument in Atlas Shrugged is regulations are designed to go ahead and protect... Okay, um, uh, those who um, are trying to subjugate others because of their weakness, right? Right. So in many ways, Rand has elements of you know Nietzsche, right? You know where you know, <clears throat> uh, you know, you, you know Nietzsche's argument that you get all these government institutions in large part to go ahead and prop up those. Who aren't talented, <laughs> right? right? Okay. <laughs> so uh, my so second your your second novel uh, is yes. Steinbeck, of course. <laughs> when I saw Steinbeck, it was like, of course. And you chose the Grapes of Wrath. There also could have been of Mice and Men. Men, yes. A similar. Yeah, thing. yeah. Um, yeah. East uh, Eden, uh, right? Uh, like yes. all of those are that. But you chose Grapes of Wrath, which I think is an excellent representation yeah. of Steinbeck. And again, this is another book um, that I read in high school. Um, And and by the way, listeners, I truly feel sorry for you if you did not have great high school English teachers, uh, because I did have great high school English teachers. And a lot of these books that either Nia picked or on my list, I first read in high school. Right. right. Um, I ran. I read in college. Okay. I, uh, thank yeah. goodness, no high school. Professor. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. No high school, school teacher tried to take. Yeah. It. I. I. I don't think I would have been able to understand, particularly Atlas Shrugged. Right. Right. <laughs> but Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath. So, uh, written by an American novelist, um, uh, Steinbeck. Um, the book actually won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Um. Uh, but it's set in the Great Depression, and the novel focuses on a family, the Jodes, who are poor tenant farmers in Oklahoma, right? And because of the drought during the Great Depression, um, they actually move to uh, California, right? So, you know, they were trapped in the dust bowl, you know, agricultural conditions of the late 1920s, early 1930s. Um, And they set out with a whole bunch of other residents of Oklahoma who received the very dismissive, condescending nickname, Okies. 
they were seeking jobs and land and pretty much everything they no longer had or never had in Oklahoma, right? Um, the book Isn't there was, a song, Okie from Muskogee? Yeah, that was uh, 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 written uh, and performed by Merle Haggard, okay? Um, and uh, The Grapes of Wrath, when it first came out, okay, was criticized as being socialist, okay? And was also criticized, by the way, by a whole bunch of politicians in California, because when the Okies got to California, okay, they were discriminated against and frequently thrown in jail simply for traveling to that state looking for work. And some roads were closed. Closed, yes. And yes. they were not allowed in. Like, they were literally not allowed in. Yes, yes. Um but it's and, a, and people in California are like, we weren't like that. Like, yes, you actually yeah, were. Were, right? Okay. History, I mean, we, we know because we have witness accounts. Yes. On right? both sides. This yeah, is not there, a, you know, there are prison records where, okay, you know. It, it, crime it, it, is being from Oklahoma. Yes. Okay. Not being Californian. Right. I mean that was the phrase. Yeah, and it's not it's not just Oklahoma. They did that to anybody who. Yes. But you know that's Polish Susan. Yeah. But, but it's it, it 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 has an implicit critique of capitalism, right? Because capitalism, and and again, even if you love capitalism, and in generally, you know, at the end of the day, I'm still going to hang my hat on a capitalist economy instead of other ones. Okay. I, I, you know, that's where I fall. On this, we civilly disagree. Okay. But um, capitalism, even if you like it as an economic form, okay, the market picks winners and losers. Right. And if you are a loser, okay, um, you're going to suffer conditions of depravity, okay, of loss, okay, that you may never recover from. Okay, you may never recover from. And that's capitalism, right? Thus, the reason why, okay, even in democracies with capitalist economic systems, you need to have a welfare state to provide a safety net. Okay. Right. Now, um, I, yes. Can I just say, I would, these words coming out of my mouth are somewhat painful, but I'm going to say them to you. If for some reason you cannot or will not read the book, Mm -hmm. The movie with Henry oh. Fonda oh. is amazing. Yeah. And yes. does a really good job of portraying the book. Yes. Like sometimes the movie and the book, you're like, are those the same? Yeah, thing? you're like, how did they even how did we even get here? Yeah. They, they, John Ford, who's the director of that film, did a fantastic job at Henry Ford. I mean, Henry Fonda, of course, is a fantastic actor. Yes. So just as a side note that if you, for some reason, your patience is lacking in reading that particular book, you might consider the movie, which we don't usually say about books, but we would say about this one. This one. And, and I've shown The Grapes of Wrath in my politics and film class. Um, and students um, uh, have talked about how the movie stuck with them for weeks afterwards. I mean, because there are images in the movie um, that just are, are- Very powerful. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, 
um, there is a great Bruce Springsteen song based on um, the character uh, in this book and in the movie. Um, and, and it's the uh, title track for it, uh, from his album, The Ghost of Tom Joad, um, which was, um, well, is one of my favorite Springsteen songs. And it's uh, also one of my favorite, or one of the favorite songs of my uh, dearly departed uh, friend and colleague, Herb Hirsch. Um, he just absolutely loved this book, loved this movie. And every time he had a chance to go ahead and play uh, The Ghost of Tom Joad, um, he was like, <laughs> they need to hear this. People should know this. Okay. But anyways, um, you have. I have, I've. I'm going to mention authors, but not specific titles uh, yes. in my in my next as yes. we take turns. My next turn, I'm going to say Margaret Truman. Yes. Read anything by Margaret Truman. Yes. Uh, murder at the Supreme Court, Murder at the Smithsonian. They're all murder at. They are murder mysteries. Yes. But they 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 give you a really good. Um, a sense of Washington as a city yes. and how it works and the political intrigues involved. And the reason they do that, the last name Truman may sound familiar to you yes. because we had, because her father was president. Yes. Yes. And so, uh, and so she draws on this kind of insider knowledge. Um, <clears throat> and I just, I love them. I love it, them. It, I, and the, the, the books are so good, Nia, at, Capturing the culture. Right. I mean, they, they, that's the thing right. about the Washington. milieu of the city. Yes. That that's the thing that many Americans don't understand, particularly if you know your you know, your experience with Washington, DC, you know, personal or firsthand experience is just popping in to go ahead, you know, and you know, see the monuments or you know, to see the museums. You do it for a weekend and then you leave. Well, you're not gonna capture like Truman's books do. Okay, just the culture, the city. yeah, that has that has developed over the years. It, and again, this takes this takes us back to the comment that you made a few minutes ago about, you know, politicians that are like, okay, I'm going to go to Washington D.C. and I'm going to go ahead and clean up the swamp, or I'm going to change the culture, right? No, you're not. You know, Barack Obama. You know how long that culture's been there? Yeah, you know, you know, Trump said I'm going to, you know, drain the swamp. Uh, Obama said I'm going to change the culture. You know, Jimmy Carter said I'm going to go to Washington D.C. and I'm going to, you know, show them how to go ahead and run ethical government like we did down in Georgia. I'm like, no, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> I mean, this place, okay, this national capital is built on land that is swampland, right? right? It was land, okay, that two states were willing to give up. That should tell you something, right? right? <laughs> okay. And people willing to live there, willing to live in the swamp. But it, it's an interesting, yeah, she she draws a lot of her insider knowledge from Yes, that. yeah, yeah. Um, your next book is is Joseph Heller, Catch-22. Yes. Um, and Catch-22, for anybody who, like, isn't familiar with the phrase, if English is not your first language, Catch-22 has come to mean an unwinnable situation. Yes, it's an ironic, unwinnable, unwinnable situation to where 
something can stand for one thing, okay, and mean something else, and they're not compatible, okay? Um, and in the case of Catch-22, what's incompatible, at least according to the author Joseph Hiller, was war, okay? Um, um, and, uh, and, and, it, and that's what Catch-22 about, it, it is a it's a satirical war novel um, that was uh, published in 1961. Um, and uh, the novel set in World War II, it follows the life of <laughs> Captain John, and I always mispronounce the name, Yazarian, okay, um, who is an Army Air Force. And this was before the Air Force became a standalone unit within the Department of Defense, okay? Um, and he's a bombardier in this island of Pianosa in the Mediterranean. And it covers episodes from basic training to actually being in the war. Um, and it covers, it, it's, it's about the absurdity of war and military life through the experiences of those who fight wars, those on the ground, or in this case, the air, okay? Uh, they try to maintain their sanity while they fulfill their service requirements, right? But, um, yeah. A, a warning we should give listeners who want to read this book Yes, is that it is told out of time. It is not chronologically told. Yes. And it is told by different characters' point of view. Like, Yes. It it's a little bit like reading pulp fiction would be. Yes. Right? If you've ever seen the film Pulp Fiction and it's you can see that chronologically it's not quite and you're like I don't know who we're what are we Yeah, that's how you're going to feel reading Catch 22. Yeah. Part of that is intentional to make you uncomfortable as a reader, right? It, it, yeah, cuz part one of, of that is to make you because one of Heller's points that he's making in the book is that war is disorienting right. those who experience it. Right. Right. And so the book is disorienting. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I again, I read this in high school. I've had to re reread it two or three times since, and every time I do, I gain more knowledge about you know each of these characters and their perspectives um but uh again younger listeners when you hear somebody older use the expression catch 22 that's what they're referring to okay which is you know if i do x okay even if that makes sense the catch okay may mean something else think damned if i do damned if, damned I, if don't. I don't that's right okay In, either way it's it's a no-win situation situation okay. or a kobayashi maru for all of these star trek fans out there yes okay this may make sense in this context but in a different context that absolutely makes no sense whatsoever and for our listeners who've ever been in the military or a paramilitary uh, organization you have catch 22 experiences all the time. Right. And me and I. Why are we doing that? Because I said so. Okay. Or, you know, me and I have commented, 
that because we work at a you know university setting, we frequently experience catch twenty-twos. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, this is yet another one of the books. Okay, that was made into a movie. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's, it's a good adaptation. I wouldn't say it's great, but it's a good adaptation. Uh, uh, it was directed by uh, Mike Nichols, um, uh, who's done a lot of good, who did a lot of good work. Yeah. Um, by the way, we should note, these are all old. Yes. All of our choices are old. Yes. Um, neither one of us is talking about modern fiction. Yes, uh, because modern fiction is um, I'm selfishly uh, I don't want to talk about modern fiction because it can be so divisive a topic. Yes. We are talking about fiction that is considered relatively classic, except for the next person I'm going to mention, who is yes. not considered classic, who's considered more of a bubblegum sort of a thing. Um, <laughs> but that's Tom Clancy. I love Tom Clancy. Tom Clancy's novels are researched within an inch of their existence. Like yes. yeah. when he talks about the technical aspects of a of, for instance, the hunt for Red October, when he is describing how submarines work, he he is describing them from a place of deep research and knowledge. Yes, yes. But the but the um they are not in the same line as uh well i mean you know compare clancy's books to steinbeck's books right. Stein, steinbeck was purposely trying to provide social commentary clancy, clancy is not clancy is not on the other hand clancy's books because they're rooted at least is you know the early ones were rooted in the Cold War, okay? Really highlighted how both the Soviet Union and the United States spent a whole bunch of money, right? And made some rather significant technological advances, okay? In regards to nuclear power, nuclear weapons, okay? Um, um, uh, submarines. Um, uh, being able to go ahead and do surveillance of other nations, all because of the Cold War. Right, and he and he does an excellent job describing those things. So if you are looking for a, a non-military person's understanding of military hardware and that sort of thing, yes. Tom Clancy was associated with the military, but he explains it really well. Well, yes, he, yeah. he gives a really good. Um, I, so I should not have said bubblegum. I should have said they are a populist way of understanding those very technical. Um, when I first started reading Clancy's books, I often thought that I wished our politicians explained. The technical uh, stuff the way he does. Yes, that's yes, right. Okay. I agree. And again, that's one of the purposes of, of good books is to provide you an entree into a field, a way of life, etc., that you may never have had without that book. Now, right. also, let's be very clear. Clancy's books have some of the, in my estimation, some of the best drawn characters related to the cold war okay 
um, of probably the last, you know, 40 to 50 years. I mean, let's face it. Okay. Jack Ryan. Okay. Is a, He's part, a great character. Okay. Is a great character. He's great. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Marco Ramius. Okay. Um, in the hunt for uh, red October. Okay. Is a great character. Right. Right. So even if you've never little, seen. Don't see the movie. Okay. Okay. But again, <laughs> I know many of the listeners, okay. You Don't know, see the movie. Sean Connery does okay. not do a Russian accent worth a darn. No, he doesn't, right? <laughs> but the character in the book is fantastic. Okay, is just utterly fascinating, right? right. Okay. Has a great uh, backstory. And and that's the thing. Um, some of the characters, many of the characters in the Clancy books do have great backstories. Right. Um, and I always thought that that was one of the primary, if you will, positives of the Clancy books was that he gave life to who some of these government officials who are fighting this Cold War, who they really are, okay, even if it's not rooted into specific um, uh, real life characters. Yes. And the other person who on your list who does that with extreme ability is Le Carre. Yes. It's Tom um, Le Carre. Tinker yes. Taylor's Soldier Spy is one of his books. Yes. Russia House. I mean, like. The spy who came in from the cold. Talk about yes. making people real. Yes. His people are so real that I believe they are actually people. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, in like, part, um, uh, Le Carre uh, was uh, the pen name for a former uh, British intelligence officer, uh, David Cornwell. Um, and uh, he worked in the uh, uh, SIS, um, the Secret Intelligence Service of the British government in the 1950s and early 1960s, um, but then started to write books um, under, you know, a, a pseudonym, in part because um, British rules at the time said he couldn't go ahead and <laughs> write books okay? under his own his, name. His own name. Uh, and I picked Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy uh, for a number of reasons. One, um, it came on the heels of uh, one of the, uh, uh, what is the, the word I'm looking for, greatest um, spy um, controversies. Um, in modern times. Um, in Great Britain, there were um, five um, highly placed British intelligence officers known as the Cambridge Five, who were exposed as um, uh, double agents. They were spies for the British uh, KGB. No, for the Russian KGB. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, the Soviet. They KGB, were in the British, British spy system, system, but they were double agents for the Russian KGB. KGB yeah. Okay. Um, and the, because the guess what? It's really hard to guard against that. Yes, it is. Okay. I mean, yeah, and um, so that's one reason. Okay, I I picked this book. The second reason I picked this book is it really describes how Great Britain was beginning to have less influence on the world stage after the, the Second World War. So the British intelligence 
service, was engaged in various operations and taking gambles so that they could remain relevant. But in the process of trying to remain relevant, they basically opened the doors within their own organization to a whole bunch of, you know, <laughs> double agents for the KGB. Right. Uh, the other reason why I picked this, and, and this is completely personal, um, the, the main character in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy um, is one of, in my estimation, one of the great late 20th century um, characters um, uh, in literature, George Smiley, um, who is um, a kind of sort of rumpled, nondescript, okay, uh, government bureaucrat who just shows up to work. Everybody underestimates him, okay? Um, even his wife thinks so little of him that she, you know, serially cheats on him, okay? Oftentimes with some of his co-workers or best friends. Um, but he's he's a grinder, he just shows up every day, does his work, okay? Um, and the number of times that people who uh, have compared me to Smiley, <laughs> I've lost out because I've had people who are like, you know who you remind me of, Augie? And I'm like, no, who? They're like, have you ever read uh, um, uh, John Le Carre's books? And you're like, like uh huh. And they're like, <laughs> you know that Smiley character. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> as a side note, Smiley has been played by some of the greatest actors. Oh yes, James yes. Mason, George Cole, Alec Guinness, yes. Peter Vaughn, uh, and lately Gary Oldman. Lately, you know, in the in the two thousands, yes. Gary Oldman, like. Smiley's the character that actors that actors want to play. Yes, because so much of of Smiley is internal, right? So you have to be a good actor, actor in order to go to get ahead. Him yeah, right. Um, and by the way, for those of you who are wondering, um, uh, the the title of the book refers to uh, an old British nurse nursery rhyme, um, and uh, the the nursery rhyme, uh, the the kind of sort of punchline to the nursery rhyme is. Tinker Taylor, soldier, sailor, rich man, poor man, bigger, beggar man, thief. Um, and I'm not going to give away the basic plot in, for the book, because if I go ahead and explain the book title, I will give away the entire book. Right? And we will be here for. Yes. OK. But it, it, again, it, it, one last thing. The movie version, the 2011 movie version with Gary Oldman, is actually a really good adaptation of the book. Because if you read the book, I don't know about you, Nia, but if you read the book, you're thinking there's not a chance anybody can go ahead. <laughs> it's too complicated. <laughs> complicated. It, 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 there's a TV series, and it actually, I thought, you know, the TV series did a pretty good job but it had multiple hours to go ahead and explain everything for the book. Right. The and movie, it again is one of those books where you need to sit down with it. Yes. And really be ready to delve. Yes. 
because it's there are layers and layers and layers to this book and yeah. same with russia house there yes le carré writes in layers yes so mm-hmm. none of his books are easy peasy to read can we okay. do quick special mentions yes um you have a special mention which i think is fantastic william golding uh the lord of the flies yes <laughs> um, everybody everybody has read the lord of the flies if they have not they should have yes because it's like a standard this is what happens when you leave (laughs) a bunch of boys stranded on an island and and i think it's not fair to just say that it would be boys boys yes i mean because i think it's people yes okay right it's people who but anyway so the basic plot of the book is a group of British boys are stranded on an uh, uninhabited uh, island, and they make various attempts to govern themselves. And boy, the results are bad. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But uh, uh, this book also won a Nobel um, uh, Prize for Literature. Um, but it's an al- it's an allegory, right? I mean, the central theme is um, there are conflicting human impulses about civilization and organization, um, and you know the difficulties with living by rules, doing so peacefully, perhaps even in harmony. Um, but you know the the will to power, okay, can have disastrous consequences. Right. Right. I mean, and and that's one of the reasons why when you have somebody who says, I just want to go ahead and, you know, live by myself. okay, or live with, you know, my loved ones and just leave us alone. Well, that doesn't. It's so not going to happen. And even if it did happen, who, you know, you are assuming that it's going to go well. Right. right? Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, that that is just a pure view of it not going well. Yeah. And, right. Um, we, okay. we. I think it's a. I, I think it's a lovely mention on this list. My last special mention is uh, anything by Ian Fleming. Yes. And yeah. I put to you that this is because one James Bond is a ridiculously fun character. Yes. The the ridiculous stuff that James Bond gets up to and doesn't get killed, novel <laughs> after novel after novel after novel after novel, is crazy. Yes. Right? But I would recommend reading the books over watching the movies. Not because I don't love Sean Connery. I do. Not because I don't love Roger Moore. I do. I'm okay with the others. But because I came up at a certain age, I have I have feelings. See, my, my two favorite actors were connery first and then the most recent daniel craig daniel craig is fantastic okay um, um, we have an unfortunate pierce brosnan period in there we have an unfortunate tim dalton period in there yeah um, tim dalton george lazenby only got one movie but he did okay with it right okay so like, you know you know timothy dalton great stage actor i don't know what they were thinking or what he was thinking by agreeing to do like three of those right yeah but, when you read the books, right? Here's the thing. The books, again, and I still remember this. Nia, I, I, I read the, the, the Fleming books when I was in high school, right? Same with me. 
And they were an entree, again, to a world that, yes, I knew it was fictitious. I knew that, you know, people were saying, you know, they're, you know, this actor just can't live through all this stuff, et cetera. Right. Et cetera. Okay, that's fine. But because they were fun and because the Bond character was so over the top, they gave me an entrance into, okay. Cold War politics. Cold War politics. Yeah, okay. they they made it, they made cold, no offense to Cold War politics, but they made Cold War politics fun. Yes. Because okay. it was sort of a, it, it, uh, while Ian Fleming, Ian Fleming actually served, I think, in the military and in the intelligence services. Yeah, he was a spy for a period of time. Sort, sorts of things like that. It's not like he didn't respect the work, but he also wrote, again, a populist, in a populist style. Um, that really, to, to a certain extent, he was using humor and the misogyny and the... Uh, okay. And, and, Bond is one of the most misogynist characters. Okay. We do not believe that we don't recognize that. Exactly. We do. Okay. We recognize that. But he was using all of that in part to go ahead and poke fun at what nations were doing in this Cold War. And at the military services, at the intelligence yes. services. Okay. Where they were like, oh, we have a gadget office where we will... <laughs> make these ridiculous gadgets where your car turns into a submarine and then turns into an airplane. And they're like, that's not possible. Right. So there, there's some real it, it, fun it, it, in that, but there's also some sort of poking at the, yeah, there's an implicit. And don't forget Ian, Ian Fleming. Um, well, anyway, go ahead. Well, there was an imp implicit critique. I mean, you mentioned you right. know, the, 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 the gadgets. There's an implicit critique that ends up, having more resonance, it becomes more, uh, if you will, powerful as uh, modern society goes on, which is thinking you can use technology to go ahead and conduct a war, even a cold war, okay, is in, in, in many ways ludicrous, right? right? Um, and, and by the way, it's, it's the same kind of of uh, of you know bizarreness that you see in a movie like uh, Doctor Strangelove, right? That you could rely upon technology to go ahead and make these really tough choices. No, you can't, because at some point in time, human beings have to step in and say, "We are willing to forsake this for this," right? Well, and the other thing about that that I was going to say is, even Ian Fleming came from wealth. Yes, and. James Bond is is an orphan, and he's fake. Yes, like everything about it, all of his elegance is fake. Is fake. Yes, it's it's taught by the government to go uh, ahead and right. serve a particular role for the government. It, it's yes. all put on right. So so this, and again, there's an implicit critique about exactly. how okay modern democracy frequently uses uses its kind of sort of castaways as assets for a larger purpose, okay? And we're all disposable. And the veneer of civilization. Yes, right? Yeah, he's got a lot of layers there too, but but mostly they are a lighthearted way to get into yeah, the, the, the Cold War 
before the spy novels. Yeah, if you if you want to read something that's a little easier to start with, I think Fleming is a pretty easy. Yeah, you you mentioned this pretty uh, easy entree uh, into the spy of genre. Yeah, you mentioned this before the recording, Mia. Okay, um, you want to first get into the spy genre, Cold War politics. Okay, start with Ian Fleming. Yeah, don't okay. start with Le Carre. Okay, not, <laughs> that's right. Okay, that that's like saying, don't start with calculus. Start with algebra. Yes, and okay. work your way in. Yes, right. Okay. Yeah, because uh, if you start with calculus, you'll think I'll never get this math thing. Yes. Okay. Um, but those are our favorite books. And again, listeners, uh, we you know encourage you. We to... we stopped in the eighties. Yes, we did. So if you have modern things that you are that you're excited about and want to email us we'd love to hear that from you you can find our email on the research guide yes um, both of our emails we would love to hear if you're like oh you need to read this book or you need to put them on our list augie i don't know if i'll get to a lot of fiction oh, but, I but will. augie will get to it <laughs> and um and uh we might make a future episode where we do 80 and beyond right? yeah but, but uh, uh uh thank you nia this was a great idea um, and, and, and to your credit, um, you, you stood fast, okay, and you're like one episode, okay? Um, um, which I was like the whole summer, summer of books. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if people will want summer of books. Uh, but, you know, every, it, that's one of the great values of this we, podcast. We should, however, do a nonfiction at some point. Yeah, yeah, we should. Yep. We'll do that someday. Maybe we'll do that next summer. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> And, and again, I promise, one episode. One episode. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be hard for me, too. All, All right. right. Thanks, yeah, thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.